Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Couple things I wanted to uh, point out or plug this week before we get going on the questions. Um, one, Janice Grady has put out a book on her experiences in uh, Scientology, and she was one of L. Ron Hubbard's original Commodore's messengers uh, as a child. She has an amazing story of her time growing up in Australia with Scientology, moving to the Sea Org, and that whole experience being on the ship with Hubbard. Her mother was Yvonne Gillum, uh, who is a very prominent figure in Scientology's history, especially with Celebrity Center. And uh, her father is Peter Gillum, who is also pretty influential and, and big on, uh, if you've ever been in Scientology, in the world of Scientology, then you know about Peter Gillum through vitamins. <laughs> anyway, he's not, uh, I don't think he's connected with Scientology anymore. And, and Yvonne, unfortunately, passed away many, many years ago, and Scientology erased any real uh, evidence of her existence, even though she was the one who really came up with the idea of Celebrity Center and really put it into place, and then Hubbard sort of uh, took over. So anyway, her story, Janice's story, is absolutely amazing, and her book is the first of a series of books that are going to come out on her whole experience. I believe August 1st is the release date of those books, and I Thought I'd just put a friendly plug in for her on my show here because it is well worth checking out. Uh, August 1st, Amazon, I think it's up for pre-order or pre-sales right now, so you can check that out. In addition, of course, to my book, <laughs> Scientology A to Xenu, uh, an insider's guide to what Scientology is really all about, which uh, for those new subscribers here who watch my show, check this out and don't know, I have written a book about Scientology myself, and it is up on Amazon, and you can check that out too. All right, that all being said, if, um, if you have not seen the video with, uh, that I interviewed that I did this last week with Kay Rowe, definitely uh, you should check it out. It is a little mind-blowing uh, in terms of some of the content in that video and pretty, pretty horrible inside look at how the C organization deals with people who have medical conditions. I wish that her story was unique and different and strange in the world of Scientology and the Sea Org, but unfortunately it's not. All right, let's get on with your questions now. We've got some good ones this week. TTrav007. In your talk with Aaron Smith Levin, you mentioned memory recall, ARC straight wire, not thinking of any possible downside. I would be curious if it could lead to false memory construction. Is it supposed to be real memory recall, or do the people involved know that you are reconstructing a memory? And Hamish Downey. Hi Chris, really love your show and thank you for always answering my questions. I just read this article on false memories and memory hacking on www.motherboard.vice.com and I instantly thought of you. I wondered what you might make of it and any possible implications it has on the memories recovered during an auditing session. Yeah, false memories and uh, and memory goofiness. I, this is not something I'm an expert in. This is where you really got to get into the neurology of things in order to really get into how memory works. And and there's just still, uh, as far as I know from when I have looked into it, they're still figuring this stuff out. Um, and Hamish, the article you uh, sent to me from motherboard.vice.com, I looked at. And I, I, I can't really get behind everything that woman was saying as far as, well, any memory you have from earlier than two years old is, is a fake memory or false memory. I don't, 
I know I don't necessarily buy into that, this idea that, well, the brain doesn't construct any memories before you're two years old, because I, of course, I'm going to refute that because I have a very, very clear memory of my first birthday, and I've had it all my life. I didn't just come up with this memory through auditing sessions or through, you know, somebody asking me about it or through, uh, you know, some experience that, that somebody had where they were suggesting things to me. I just have always had that memory. So when she said, well, there's just nobody who ever remembers anything before they're two years old, I just instantly go, nah, it doesn't match up with my subjective experience. So, you know, had a little bit of a hard time with that one. But I do absolutely go into the idea that false memories can be created and that people can absolutely uh, mistake imagination for memory. And if, and if I'm doing that for my first birthday, maybe I am, right? But I've always had that memory, so I don't know, right? But I'm willing to be open to the idea that maybe if you could, you know, somehow prove to me that there's just no way at all that that could ever be possible, then maybe I might review you know, whether I'm making up that memory or not. Um, now, when it comes to Scientology auditing, though, I will be a bit more uh, critical about those memories because of a couple things. One, in the book Science of Survival from 1951, L. Ron Hubbard said that imaginary incidents are perfectly acceptable in running Dianetics on someone. And that if somebody says, well, we're just making it up or I don't really know about this, Hubbard said it still had remedial or, um, you know, value uh, in terms of, you know, helping the person. And you shouldn't discount it, right? And in fact, it could even be helpful to sort of prime the pump in a way and get a person going by running things with Dianetics that were just known to just not be not be accurate or not be true. Now, uh, therefore, that opened the door in Scientology to the idea that you could run things, and if you were imagining them or, or creating them, you know, out of whole cloth, uh, the auditor, because of the auditor's code in Scientology, where the auditor's not supposed to evaluate for the preclear or tell him what to think about his uh, case or invalidate the preclear's case or gains in or out of session. Those are the first two points of the auditor's code, and they're really, really important in Scientology. So, because of those two points, the auditor is going to be the last person who's supposed to tell the person, well, that's just imaginary and we're not going to do anything with it, right? And in fact, they'll go the other way and they will encourage a person to. Um, you know, run something in an auditing session that may be like the person's going, yeah, there's just no way this is this is true. The auditor goes, it's all right, just just go ahead and tell me what's going on, right? So there's that whole thing where you know you're making something up or you suspect, well, this just doesn't really fly because here's what's happening, right? The auditor, almost every time that that's going on, will be thinking to himself, this thing really happened to the person. Maybe this thing really happened to the person in a past life, but they're still going to think, the auditor's still going to go, have a tendency to go in a direction where they're going to think that whatever this person is making up actually did happen at some point. And if you give over to the idea that you're an immortal spiritual being who has lived a near infinite amount of time in the t into the past, then you're willing to give over to the idea that just about anything and everything have happened to you at some point during that past. 
right? From, you know, space technology civilizations like Star Wars to magic. Hubbard even talks in a couple lectures about the fact that back in the distant past, there was magic. Just, woo, you know, magic, right? Spellcasters and people flying around on creatures with wings and wizards and things. He doesn't get into a lot of detail about it. It's like a one-liner that he just drops in the middle of a lecture or two, right? But, but nothing is too fantastical to be brought up in an auditing session. And nothing is gonna, that is brought up is going to be poo-pooed or say, yeah, there's just no way that's true. Unless <laughs> you start bad-mouthing David Miscavige, <laughs> okay, or Al Ron Hubbard, then they might, then the auditor might start rejecting what you're saying, right? If you start saying that, you know, uh, last, if you were to go in an auditing session and you were to say that, you know, David Miscavige assaulted me last week, the auditor might go, okay, what's going on here? And they might start doubting your word, right? Because that's now offending their biases about. Scientology executives and leaders, right? So, so that's where they'll get critical of your of your memories, but they won't get critical of you flying around on some eagle with a fifty foot wingspan when you were a wizard, you know, three billion years ago. So, you know, it's a little bit funny. Uh, now, as far as false memories go, like I said, I'm not an expert on this, but to directly address this, I will say that uh, I know for a fact I made stuff up in auditing, uh, especially on the um, false purpose rundown auditing that I was receiving when I was on the RPF, where it was required that you go back in time, you know, millions of years ago and find incidents of uh, wrongdoing that, you know, where, where you were blowing up planets and stuff, I mean, really nasty stuff. And I would just let my imagination run wild with that stuff, right? And um, and I, and I didn't particularly have the idea when I was doing it that I was just riffing on my imagination. But I look at it now and I think, yeah, that's what I was doing. At the time, I was in this mindset, like I just explained to you, where I thought, well, anything's possible. Anything and everything has happened to me. So if I'm imagining it or if I'm, if I'm seeing it when in response to an answer to a question I'm being asked, then it's probably real right? And out it comes. And which, of course, gives you the idea that Scientology lends itself to and encourages making up things that have happened in the far distant past or within this lifetime in order to answer the auditing questions, right? Because if the and, the, and the guiding thing in an auditing session is one, what the preclear is thinking, and two, what the e-meter is doing. And I have my finger here for the needle on the, on the e-meter, ding, ding, right? When it re reads on something, the auditor's going, hey, what's that, you know? And it doesn't matter to the auditor what comes up, right? The auditor will sit there and watch the meter and, and it registers and he goes, that, what's that thought that you just had? The guy goes, oh, it's crazy. I, I don't care. Tell me what it is, right? And I go, well, I imagine, uh, you know, and sometimes it could be a little bit of something, right? You have to develop it like a Polaroid picture, you know? It's a little, it's a, well, I see a corner of a desk, you know? All right. Where's the desk? What color is the desk? Where's, is it in a room? Is it outside? What, you know, tell me all about this. And you start developing this picture, right? And, um, and sure, you know, absolutely that can, like that can lend itself to false memories. So I think in all of this, you know, kind of long explanation I've given here, you get the idea of the flavor of what goes on in auditing and answering auditing questions and how anything goes. So of course, imaginary, you know, answers could come up and 
yeah, I think that there could be negative repercussions to that if a person starts believing that things happen to them that, of course, never could or, or would have happened. So, um, and that's one of the problems I have now with auditing, right? That it does that and encourages that. And, uh, and I don't think that's a, a healthy way particularly to um, rehabilitate or, or remedy a problem that a person's having or, or deal with, uh, with issues that they're having. So that's my take on that. Jonathan Mark. When I watched a DC television station's broadcast of ABC 2020's report on Ron Miscavige, I saw a Scientology ad during one of the commercial breaks. Why would Scientology buy a TV ad in the middle of a program that good Scientologists are not supposed to watch? I thought Scientology's rare TV ads, for example during the Super Bowl, are designed to impress existing Scientologists about how far-reaching the church's PR is. Broadcasting an ad that few good Scientologists would see seems contrary to that purpose. How do you explain this contradiction? Well, it seems rather obvious to me if you're, if you're being, if you have the opportunity to counter what someone, you know, you know that you have a TV show that is airing that is negative or is critical of you or your organization, what better time to buy, you know, to do ad buys to promote your organization in what you would consider to be the best possible representation of it, which is what those commercials are to try to counter the bad PR of, of Ron Miscavige bad-mouthing, you know, his son David and the Church of Scientology. And I think that's why, I think that's why they did that, and I don't think it's um, really a whole lot more complicated than that. Also, this, you mentioned that this was in Washington, D.C. That is where Scientology has not only an ideal, you know, this, this founding Church of Scientology, which is a, a fairly significant you know, location for them, but they also have a PR office, a government affairs office there, and they're gonna want to counter, you know, if they have politicians watching this show in DC or, or government officials watching it, they're gonna want to at least get their, their word in to those guys that, you know, hey, we're here, we're good, you know, we're doing good works, we're, we're spiritual in nature, and we're just a you know, fine bunch of folks. And that's what those commercials sort of portray. So I think that was the target audience in that particular case. I don't, I doubt that they did nationwide ad buys uh, on all stations, all affiliates. I think they again targeted areas where there were, you know, ideal orgs or, or where they probably thought there would be some return on the investment. And Washington DC would make sense as a place where they think they would get some kind of a return on that. So. There's, that's sort of a secondary use, I think, of those, of those Scientology ads and commercials in addition to the primary purpose, which I will still stick to my guns on, that those ads are for Scientologists and that they are there to give Scientologists a morale boost and an and a impetus to continue to pay towards Scientology because they think that it's, uh, excuse me, that it's good name and reputation are being upheld by the church by putting out those ads like say at the Super Bowl or other major events. So that's my, that's my opinion on that. Juni Hiltunen. The International Association of Scientologists bilks millions of dollars when building ideal orgs, but once they're opened, there's no chance they will ever be financially self-sustaining. So they must be subsided by the Church of Scientology and cannot be closed, sold, or repurposed for profitable business. So isn't the ideal org program counterproductive? 
The ideal org program is absolutely counterproductive, but not for the reasons you stated here. When, okay, let me give you a little bit of history on this or, or a little bit of my experience with, with running Scientology organizations from a management position. And one of the problems that the ideal org problem absolute or program rather absolutely did solve. When I was in management, which was from 1995 until 2003 or so, um, we were faced with mortgage issues, rent problems all the time from the small struggling orgs that weren't making it as far as being able to pay their mortgage or their rent. And this was a real problem. And especially, I mean, this was a gigantic problem that was on our shoulders over and over and over again. And one of the reasons it was a problem is because you had, it, or where, where it was a problem, Albuquerque, um, Las Vegas, Valley, the, the Valley organization in California constantly having, we had to move them like three times because they kept not paying their rent. They just weren't making you know enough money. Um, Santa Barbara had a problem a couple times, Salt Lake City, Kansas City. One of the first things I did when I joined the Sea Org was flew out to Kansas City with somebody else to, as a Sea Org member, to uh, go out and help them make money to hold on to their building because they were so far they were like three or four months behind on their rent and they were about to get the boot. So renting properties or leasing properties um, was a real headache for the orgs uh, if they fell behind on their rent because it just became this like you know uh, snowball effect. They don't make it one month, then they can't make it up, then they can't make it up, and you know it just becomes this big issue. So when that happened, by the way we had to pay their rent, right? Because it would float up to us as continental management to deal with the orgs that we were mismanaging so badly that they weren't able to make their rent, right? And there's a certain point to that. I mean, as management, that was our job. So, uh, so it fell on us and we had to, out of our own money and our own reserves, pay for those uh, orgs rent or pay their mortgage payment. Uh, this happened over and over again. I mean, one time there was a period of about six months where we, we got no pay at all for weeks and weeks and months because uh, our reserves and our, our, our own management you know, income had been stripped to the bone in order to deal with these you know, dying organizations that were going to die if we didn't deal with it. And uh, the one you know, principle that we absolutely, I mean, it was law, right, was... Uh, orgs do not close ever, 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 right? So there was no excuse, no way that this was not going to be resolved. And it was, and the pressure was on us, right? So we had to deal with that. Now, when the ideal org program came along and the, and part of this program being to buy the building outright and own it, uh, that solved the lease rent problem. Just solved it because if you own your own building and as the Church of Scientology I don't think they're even you know making property tax taxes payments all they have to do now in their new building is pay the utilities pay the upkeep for the building right just just manage it just hold just just manage to keep the doors open just manage to pay the lights pay the heat right pay the air conditioning where where that's ne necessary and that's it. That's all they got to pay, which is a much less payment than the lease and the rent and the mortgage tended to be. Okay, 
Um, you know, the only place I've ever wondered how they're how they're dealing with it was in uh, is in Twin Cities, right, where they have a ninety thousand square foot building that they have to keep heated uh, for you know eight months out of the year when it's freezing out there. That's an expensive uh, utility bill, right? But even then, it's just a few thousand bucks versus you know the the fact that Twin Cities was almost booted from their building, you know, many times. So that is what that 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 problem became a solved problem by the idea org program and um that's that's so that's not why it's counterproductive right the reason why it's counterproductive is because it is um making one it's making false promises to the to the public and it's going to drive more scientologists away from the church eventually than it will bring them in because it's attempting to to solve a pr problem and a service problem that scientology has with nice fancy quarters right and nice fancy quarters might have satisfied tom cruise's need for you know someplace nice to bring his friends to when he wanted to talk about scientology with them but it doesn't solve anything when it comes to bringing you know every your every person your every man or every woman in off the street and getting them to come into the church and partake in scientology services the 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 quality of the quarters was never the thing that was bringing people into scientology and all you got to do is look at how crappy a lot of the churches were in the 70s and 80s yet they were full they were full up with people right there were all kinds of people coming in and doing scientology and so it didn't really have a whole lot to do with the quality of the desks and the chairs and the and the the building right uh, but Miscavige got it in his head that it did, and uh, and then so they have been on this whole roll to buy new buildings and renovate them, and pocket millions and millions of dollars in the process for the church, because the amounts that they're having to fundraise for these buildings is way in excess of what they're paying for the building, and for what they are, um, and then they're paying the church directly to renovate the building, hire contractors, do all that work that the church is, is making out like a bandit on, on all of that. So, uh, so to that degree, financially speaking, it's not counterproductive for David Miscavige, but on a longer term look, like David Miscavige is a piss poor manager, right? If he was a good manager who actually wanted to see Scientology expand, he would not be doing it the way that he's doing it. So that's, uh, so it's productive, counterproductive, but you know, for different reasons. BTC. First off, I find it painfully obvious that fair game, or something like it, is alive and well to this day. However, the church claims that it was canceled as early as 1968. Hubbard apologists would take the position that any fair game practiced today is Captain Dave's doing and can be in no way charged to Hubbard, while critics claim that Hubbard did not cancel fair game itself, but that he canceled only use of the term for PR reasons. To your knowledge, was the practice and or terminology in use after 1968 or did they rebrand the harassment of persons non grata? As recently as in the Monique Rathbun lawsuit, the church defended harassment as a religious practice that should be, as they claimed, outside of the purview of U.S. law. Were they defending their right to fair game or something else entirely? Well, as you said, it's pretty obvious that the church still engages in fair game harassment and stalking and, you know, do anything that they feel that they need to in order to silence uh, critics that they have targeted for whatever reason they've targeted them. Um, now, with all of the bad PR that has been generated, 
especially in the last 10 years, they've had to tone that down quite a bit compared to what they used to get away with in the 1970s and 80s and even into the 90s, right? Um, so it's a whole different world now in regards to what the church does now versus what they used to do. Yes, they do still harass people, they do stalk people, they do make hate websites about them, they, you know, stalk them around on Twitters, you know, and this kind of stuff. But that's nothing compared to what Paula Cooper had to endure, for example, through the 1970s with Operation Freakout, which is the subject of Tony Ortega's book. Um, and, you know, that was hardcore infiltration of her life, trying to get her to commit suicide, trying to frame her for, you know, a bomb uh, threat on the church, which the church itself manufactured. I mean, really nasty stuff. Is the church still capable of doing that? Of course they are. You know, would they do that kind of thing now? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how far they'd be willing to go now. I think it would depend on the target. And I think it would depend on how much damage was being done to the church as to how far they'd be willing to go. So is this practice still in use though? Well, as you said in the question itself, absolutely it is. That was the whole subject of Monique Rathbun's lawsuit against the church. So do they call it fair game? No, no, they probably don't, right? I never heard that term used in all the years that I was in Scientology for an operation being carried out against somebody else. We never ever used it as part of the lingo of, oh, he's getting fair gamed or we're going to fair game him or something, right? So it had, at least internally, in the circles I ran in, and, uh, and I ran in a few of them, that term was not in use. I think when Hubbard canceled that back in 68, then internally they stopped using that. But that didn't mean that they stopped doing it. Right, and the evidence of that is is numerous, repeated testimonials from people in and out of court as to how they were harassed and stalked and and fair gamed. Right, so the the use of the term is pretty much, uh, from what I've seen, used by critics. Right, it's used by people who have been the target of that, and they correctly call it fair gaming because it's exactly what Hubbard said to do. But the church, you know, may or may not call it that, but really we're just talking semantics now. We're not talking about the actual what they do. And as far as uh, their defense of it in Monique Rathman's case, I, I can't be totally sure about this, but I believe they were arguing on free speech merits that, you know, people who were standing outside the Rathman's home shouting in at them and standing around out there and, and you know, just the, 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 the uh, squirrel buster signs and the various things they were doing uh, was all a matter of First Amendment free speech, right? And anybody can do that anytime, anywhere they want, as long as they're on public property. You can't go on to private property and do that sort of thing, of course. You can't climb fences and go into a private apartment complex and do that to somebody. Uh, but if you're standing on a public sidewalk outside their house, you can pick it. You could, you know, shout whatever you wanted to. You could do, you know, if you were following the law, you could make, you know, whatever level of noise you could make before the police were called out. So there's a lot of freedom of speech that we have in this country that people are given the right to, to express themselves. And we like that right, and we want to have that right, but we don't want to have people stalking and harassing people either. So there's a line that needs to be drawn there, and that line is supposed to be drawn by the courts, and that's what that suit was all about. But we didn't get a chance to see where that was going to go because Marty Rathbun pulled the plug on that. So, 
That's what I can say about that whole subject. Fuzzy Skinner. You mentioned the spirit of play as an element of running an org. How does this coexist with the dim view Hubbard took and modern Scientologists take of joking and degrading, J and D? Is this another instance of the cognitive dissonance that is used by many destructive cults to keep their members off balance? All right, I looked up this uh, quote off that Hubbard uh, gave. This is from a 1952 lecture from the Philadelphia Doctorate course where uh, it's called, uh, the name of the lecture, it's, it's the 26th lecture in the course, and it's called Flow's Characteristics Of. And in it, Hubbard first mentions or first starts talking about this idea of a spirit of play. And he says, here's, here's the exact quote on it. There's nothing succeeds like insouciance. Plain flippancy will actually get more done in less time than anything else you can name. As we go up the tone scale and things become lighter and lighter, a person can, of course, become much more ethical and at the same time lots less serious. It sounds funny that a person who is very serious is liable to fall short on his ethics. As we go get up the tone scale, we find that individuals are airier and lighter and actually more aesthetic. And the more serious you take the game, the less chance there is of winning it. This tells you it takes lots of space and lots of unseriousness to win. Now that was in 1952 when Scientology was still fairly new and fresh and it was a very different atmosphere than, ha than when we move forward 13 years later in 1965 when L. Ron Hubbard is writing uh, Keeping Scientology Working and saying that Scientology is a deadly serious activity, win or die in the attempt, and uh, there's no such thing as being half-minded about being a Scientologist. So clearly there was a you know, viewpoint change over the years as Hubbard got more and more enmeshed and admired in you know, the, the seriousness of Scientology and he started you know, kind of dreaming up these OT levels and the, and the heavy duty stuff that had been done to people over all these centuries and millennia. He started making it out to be a much more serious thing. And so you have this idea in Scientology from the earlier works of a spirit of play, of, you know, as you go up the tone scale and as things are, are you know, more uptone, they're more fun and they're freer and they're livelier. And as you go down the tone scale, things get serious and solid and, and stuff doesn't really get done so easily and so well. And Scientologists sort of, interpret these two things as, you know, they have to sort of mentally make those two things make sense. And so what they do is they, at least what I did and what I saw others do, is they treat Scientology as the top priority in their life. There isn't anything else more important than what they're doing with Scientology. And everything sort of focuses and aligns to it. And that's why, of course, why I joined staff and why I joined the Sea Org, for example. Um, but while doing Scientology, while it is a deadly serious activity, and while it does matter whether, you know, Scientologists clear the planet or not, and whether they make it or not, uh, the way to act while you're in Scientology is to smile and be fun and be gay and free. And, you know, I talked about this a little bit with Kay, actually, in my interview this week. Uh, that this forced gaiety that occurs in Scientology when they're doing things that, you know, really, none of them really want to be doing, right? I mean, the fundraisers, you know, really don't enjoy the fundraising. The people who are being fundraised don't really enjoy being fundraised, but they feel that it's necessary to do that 
because Scientology has to survive and it has to make it and it has to get more people on board or we're all dead, right? I mean, that's kind of their view is that if, if, if this doesn't happen, we're all dead uh, forever. Not just now, but forever, right? And there's a good chance that the planet's going to blow itself up and, you know, all these various horrible, awful things that are going to happen. So they got to deal with that. But while they're doing it, let's do it with a smile, right? Why so serious, <laughs> right? This kind of view. So uh, that's sort of the push and pull of what goes on in Scientology. And it is crazy making. I can tell you from personal experience that it just drives you absolutely batty because uh, it just messes with your head and you're bouncing around between all these crazy priorities and all this nonsense that's going on. And then trying to use the spirit of play to justify really abusive mental and, and emotional uh, you know, behavior that's not, not healthy for people. So that's kind of how all that plays out, I guess. It is time for Flash Answers. Andy Lesser. Chris, question for you since you brought up OT8 on the ship. Have you ever heard of a situation where a Scientologist had seasickness and was allowed to do OT8 on dry land? Nope, not ever. Never heard of that. Hubbard wrote in some flag orders about how to deal with seasickness, so I'm pretty sure they would apply those remedies, and I'm pretty sure those remedies actually work because Hubbard was a real sailor and he really did deal with people who really did have seasickness and, and I think the remedies that they used are pretty much out of the naval you know, handbook. So that is uh, how I think they deal with that sort of thing. I never even heard of anybody who went to the ship and had seasickness though. No one I knew ever complained about that. And I suppose if it was a real problem, they could have waited until the ship went into dry dock because periodically it would in order to do refits and repairs. And then they still had people traveling to where it was and they would do their services uh, not on the ship while it was being retrofitted or, or re renovated, but they would do them on land at some hotel that they might have rented or something like that for the short time that that was happening. So theoretically that could have happened, but I never heard of it. Stu P.S. What Linux distribution do you use? I don't use Linux. I haven't used Linux in many, many, many years. Uh, I got Windows installed on here and I've got some, uh, you know, this is Windows 10 with some graphics emulation going on because I like the way my screen is set up like that. Uh, it looks kind of more Mac-like, but uh, it's not a Linux setup. Amanda Burke. Are there an infinite number of Thetans? I mean, Hubbard would never have predicted that the world's population would expand the way it has, right? Do Thetans multiply? I don't know. Hubbard never talked about how many Thetans were around. I do remember one place where he mentioned something about how a Thetan could create another Thetan somehow. I don't know how. They didn't really get into the details of it. This was another one of those like one-liners he just sort of throws out in the middle of a lecture. It's never really covered in a lot of detail. Um, and, you know, I don't know. There aren't girl boy, girl thetans and boy thetans. There's just, you know, thetans. And, and since he never really went into where they come from, uh, they just sort of appeared, you know, and uh, how they're created and that sort of thing. He it's just not really detailed that well in Scientology. So um, I think the idea with the increasing population of the planet is that they're just floating around here on Earth. You know, they're all trapped here, stuck here over all this time. And and honestly, it's a kind of a good question because Scientologists don't really think about this kind of stuff very much. So I find myself sort of like, you know, huh, how do I answer this one, you know? Which just shows that it's not well covered in Scientology. 
Okay, that is our show for this week. I would encourage anybody who is enjoying my channel and enjoying what I'm putting out here to please join me on Patreon. That is at uh, patreon.com slash chrisshelton and become part of uh, the, the major love support machine that uh, keeps this channel going uh, because it is you guys who keep me able to do what I'm doing here. So thank you very much for all of the support and uh, love that you send through your comments and your donations and whatnot. It really, really does help and it really makes a difference. So I will see you guys again next week. Toodaloo.